0: oh do you want this on one
1: second yeah go in a little bit they are lovely one two book authors <laughs> lovely good you have to remember what i wrote later now. <laughs> all right so um gd levels uh gus you're okay right we're all right uh so i should really have one of those things you like you punch a button and have seagulls <laughs> uh, but anyway, we'll see. uh okay great we're live welcome everyone we're in the studio uh, after, well well, the rest of the world is on holiday we're slaving away in a hot studio in London town and rather than give you work we thought, dear listener, that we'd save you some work so we have our first ever, maybe our last uh, summer book <laughs> club today where we've picked uh, authors of some of the books that you told us that you were reading and would like to hear the story behind the book, about the people who are writing it and also so for those of you who are umming and ahhing as to whether you should buy the book or not at the end of this of course uh, you'll be totally persuaded or we'll cover it off anyway so just to get your ears in the right location uh, let's just go around the table so i'm ian editor-in-chief of internet retailing martin newman founder of
2: the customer first group
0: natalie berg founder of mbk retail maya knights head of industry insight at eagle eye
1: and uh, richard hammond founder of uncrowd Kind of uncrowd. That sounds good. Well, we are uh, a friendly crowd around the table, so let's just kick off. So you've all, in the last while, written newish books. Some of you've written uh, books before, looking at slightly different aspects of retail. I think it's just interesting, you know, how many areas we'll cover off between either the customer focus operational excellence um, strategy and so on so um, let's just dive straight in Mr Newman mm. um, just in case anyone doesn't know uh, who you are and hasn't been following your activities in multi-channel since well since multi-channel was invented pretty much just give <coughs> us a thumbnail uh, of how you ended up uh, in this studio
2: Well, I've spent most of my career either in retail or servicing retail, so 36, 37 years or thereabouts. At the last count, started my father's retail optical practices, spent a bit of time in the sports trade as a marketing director for a couple of big sports retailers, Um, and actually started my foray into e-commerce in 1997, when I have to hold my hands up and say I'd actually never switched on a computer prior to that, um, and one day I was chasing a document that my PA was typing up for me and she was actually on the web and I said, I've heard about this web, show me it. And that was my kind of mini light bulb moment where I kind of knew instinctively I had to get involved, both in terms of technology but just getting getting my head around the internet. Um Not long after that, I had a small web development business actually in Glasgow that sadly crashed and burned after a couple of years. So I was in the dot-com boom and bust era. But that experience, I think, stood me in good stead for when I was to build Practicology, you know, over a decade later into a successful consulting business. And in between, I had some head of online roles at Harrods Burberry and Ted Baker.
1: And I think one of the things that uh, was striking about uh, practicology was this combination of theory advice, but yet the praxis, Mm. the real how to make things happen. Um, And is that something then that you carried forward into uh, being an author? It very much is. And that's really the core premise of the book, um, 100
2: Practical Ways to Improve Customer Experience. I just felt that it was something that we talked about You know, we've been talking about being customer first, putting the customer at the heart of all we do for as long as I can remember, but we weren't delivering it. And so I wanted to write a book that I thought would cover all the different building blocks and and all the the things that I felt were important when it
1: would come to actually delivering and executing a customer first organisation. And why a book? I mean, I love books, so I'm not being um, snide, but, you know, we're talking digital, multi-channel, we've all got various pen-based digital interfaces lying around the place sure. and um, you know, you're know you working hand in hand with all these great brands and you think, do you know what, it's a book, that's what's needed. What drove you to do a book? I, I suppose a few things. Number one, I felt that nobody had
2: actually written about it and, and I hadn't seen anything that I felt offered up a our, our roadmap or a plan for how do you actually go about delivering this, which is why I felt fundamentally nobody had done it, Um, that we were talking about it and paying lip service to it. From a personal point of view, there was a little bit around the fact that I had a bit of a chip in the shoulder, you know, the fact I didn't go to university, it's quite funny. I was being interviewed uh, some time ago for the board of White Stuff, which I had the privilege of being on for about four years. and one of the founders of the business. I was telling him that sort of story. And he said, well, why? He said, you, you've built a great business and you've done really well. I said, yeah, but I missed out on a good time by not going to university. <laughs> so I do feel that I kind of missed something out. And, uh, you know, I guess I wanted to prove myself. And, and I thought that, putting my experience down into written word would be one way of mm. of doing that. Um, but I also thought instinctively that it would be an opportunity to upskill myself, both in terms of the areas that I maybe perceived or perceive myself to be an expert in. I thought, well, best way of proving that is by writing about it and actually updating my knowledge. And I thought, well, if I'm going to write about being a customer centric, business and how you achieve that, I'm going to have to cover things that I actually don't have a lot of experience of. And social responsibility, for example, was one of those. And I ended up writing, I thought, one of the strongest chapters in the book about that. But I had to really immerse myself in it and go and talk to a bunch of experts in order to get my head around what it actually meant in the first place.
1: I I think it's really interesting, uh, that idea that sometimes complex problems need a sustained level of brain power, thinking, talking to people uh, yeah. to bring that round. That's, that's really interesting. Now, all of your publishers uh, are standing outside with baseball bats and they say that if you tell the story of your book and reduce sales, they will kill us all. Let's ignore that. <laughs> Let's just go straight for it. In a nutshell, as our dear listener is in their hammock thinking, shall I, shan't I, just just summarise the book.
2: I, I would summarise it as a as a plan and covering everything you need to think about when it comes to transforming your business to put the customer at the heart of everything you do. If you want a plan and a roadmap, I think I've delivered that as best I
1: can in the book that I've written. So those plans are often best observed By being ignored. So we've sat around board tables where people have gone, yeah, 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 customer, customer, Mm. but they just don't change their behavior. (laughs) So is there something that says you've read it, you nod, but you ignore? How do you tip people over uh, into actually making those changes that are needed?
2: Well, first of all, I don't think you can do that. Uh, I think one of the challenges is that businesses have been bringing in individuals or creating roles such as the chief customer officer or the customer director and expecting, you know, that fundamental change and transformation, which is never going to, is never going to happen with, you know, through one individual. So I think in the last chapter, I, I wrote a sort of 15, 16 step guide for all the things that I thought you needed to do to go on this journey but the the fundamental thing is about bringing all the key stakeholders in the business together so having all the heads of the different business units working collaboratively with shared metrics shared objectives All around driving customer centricity, because if you're the director of logistics, or you're the buying and merchandising director, or you're the director of insight, or you're you're the retail operations director, or you're you know the chief financial officer. I mean, at the end of the day, this stuff touches every single part of the business, and that's really what I tried to write about. And I thought that. The only way you can really drive change and transformation is if you have everyone pulling together. And the problem is when you bring in an individual from outside often and call them the chief customer officer and they then start their journey going around the business, talking to all the stakeholders about you know what they want to do and the plans to drive customer centricity everyone's got their own area everyone's got their own kpis they're being measured on different stuff Mm. and that's never going to drive the behavioral changes and the change that you need in terms of collaboration in order to you know get where you want to get to so i think you have to have everyone working together and that and that means that level of collaboration
1: what if people don't want to work together Uh, I don't don't mean this in a negative way. No, of course. Uh, It's more, you know, let's say, for example, I'm a product person and I deeply love my product. Sure. And I turn to the marketing director and say, oi, not my problem. Just get some bodies through, take their money so I can do more of my lovely product. So they're not customer centric. They are passionate, yeah, they're product maybe, maybe you know, product-centric, or maybe they're artisans. Likewise, with customer people, they might say, I love my customer, give me stuff to sell them. Sure. I don't care what, I just need to make them happy. So there can be people who say, I'm trying to be customer-centric, and they say they share the values, but really, deep down, they're in their silos and running their careers. How do you get over that uh, to actually... Get a real alignment that an objective person would say, okay, fine, you get it. If we use the example of the product director, you know, the first thing I'd probably want
2: to do is actually ask them whether or not they'd spoken to any customers about plans for the range and the direction of travel they were going in with the products that we were planning to produce. Now, There's the old Henry Ford line of, you know, if I'd asked customers what they wanted, they'd have said a faster horse. But we're not talking about reinventing the wheel. More often than not, we're talking about evolution from one season to the next, if it's fashion, you know, for example, spring, summer to autumn, winter. Wouldn't you want to have the confidence that your core and most important customers who probably drive 80% of your sales, and this might only be 15 or 20% of your customer base, that they actually like the direction that you're going and wouldn't you take confidence by having that insight That's about being customer centric. Mm -hmm. You know, so if you're a product person, you might, you know, instinctively, you're obviously going to have a pretty good idea of, you know, what the brand stands for and and what you want the range to stand for and what you, the look and feel that you're trying to create. But I think you still have to think about some form of customer engagement to at least Mm -hmm. have some reassurance that you're going in the right direction.
0: Can I just play devil's advocate here and maybe say something slightly controversial? But if I had a product director working for a retailer who didn't really care what the customers thought about the products they were designing, I'd say that they're probably in the wrong industry. Um, Sure. Yeah, I I do. I think to to the point about getting everybody, all the stakeholders, all the different lines of business around a table – Creating a team of teams, as it were, Mm. with customer centricity at the heart of it as the objective goal. Um, Yeah, fair enough. You're going to get some members of a particular line of business that are more interested in their core focus, designing Mm -hmm. products, marketing to customers, and so on. But I don't. When we get to the point about how we ended up where we are and writing the books. I love writing about retail because I love to shop. I would hope that people that work for retailers mm-hmm. also love to shop and also love to produce something that resonates with customers. How You can't get more customer centric than that. And so I would.
1: But then, isn't there the- a difference between. Um, well, I mean, there are a couple of things there. So I'm going to pick up the devil's advocate mantle now. Um, example would be if you are a design house where you say, you know, I'm designing things for those who understand. We see this a lot in luxury, where they say we're not doing maths, I don't care about customers. I am. Um, I run the atelier. It's my maison. So we see that quite a lot. Mm. We also see where you're leading or changing. I mean, we were playing with your remarkable um, notepad <laughs> thing the other day. No one asked for that. We had iPads. So I, I do. Mm. I, I do want to sometimes challenge this, this normative idea. Mm. We've had um, some of our researchers in the background visiting. Uh, the London stores of our top 500 retailers. What an eye opener! What an eye opener! And they're just doing observational things like you know how are you greeted, signposting, product density, staff density, uh, how empowered a staff to do things at point of sale. You would not you would not believe just the variation, but also uh, although the services are quite varied. There's a real homogeneity mm. about what's being offered. So, oh, I agree. I mean, if, if we go back to the same, maybe turn that into a question for you, Martin, which is if you don't have to accept this, but if, as I say, that generally good, generally customer centric, general stuff is the grey gloop at the bottom of the deep ocean, where's the delight? So, am I wrong in but saying I- that normative is just normal. How do you stand out? But I,
2: but, but I, well, you stand out because you deliver great service. I mean, you, we were talking about this earlier. I've been doing mystery shopping videos mm. in Glasgow, London, Newcastle, and New York. And, and, you know, the reality is there are a massive amount of gaps currently in the customer experience, the customer journey. We talk a lot about friction, some of the people around the table have written books about friction and and removing some of those barriers, you know, and at the end of the day, you know, a lot of those still exist. So I, my, my, my contention is that I don't think retailers, by and large, even get the basics right, to be honest with you, never mind... Going the extra mile and, and standing out. Yeah. But if I can just come back a second to, I, I wanted to talk briefly about Apple because people also o- often use Apple as an example of a brand that, you know, if they'd listened to customers, they would never have designed, you know, the iPhone, they would have never designed the iPod. But I'm not sure I agree with that because I'm sure if we had the opportunity to talk to Jonathan Ives, I'm, I'm sure that the starting point of, you know, imagining what what a new um, sound system might be, or how you would listen to music in the future, would have been thinking about use cases and thinking about the examples of how do we listen to our music at that moment in time. It's on a Walkman. Well, that's not great, is it? It's big, it's bulky, it's awkward, it's not very portable. You know, how do we change that? What can we? How do we reduce the size of it? How do we create something? Yeah. you know that that's easier to use. So, I think even when you're not actually engaging with customers, you're still going through that thought process of thinking about how to improve things. Absolutely. And
1: I think uh, what's interesting uh, about that is if you look at customer behaviour and where their needs uh, and delights are, then you're not starting product first. It's not how can I make you love the stuff I want to sell you? It's Mm. more how can I find a commercial engagement? I should just say, uh, I know Sir Johnny is an avid listener of the podcast and uh, (laughs) there is uh, an open invitation uh, to you to join us at any time. uh, So we'll (laughs) cover it. Now, we always talk about what we know. I'm interested in what you learned that you didn't know or that you didn't know you needed to know. So in in doing all of this research mm. you spoke about, What was the little moment of delight for you? thought, aha, light went on, I'll never forget that. I mean, I had a a
2: challenging experience, but a great experience when I was writing the social responsibility chapter because, so what I did is I interviewed, I think roughly about 16 different people for the book, um, not necessarily for every single chapter, but in the social responsibility chapter, I went and talked to a lady called Lydia Firth, uh, the wife of Colin Firth, the actor. And she quite rightly gave me quite a tough time and i was it was actually the last interview and it was the last chapter that i completed because the way i wrote the book is i kept i don't know what, what what this is the same for the rest of you but i kept going back to the chapters that i i was most familiar with and that i understood the most and i would kind of park social responsibility and i thought eventually i'll get to that <laughs> and when i interviewed lydia and i sent her what i'd written up she basically gave me a really hard time and said not good enough and that can't go into your book with my name on it. And all you've done is write some bullet points. And I was like, oh, crikey. Okay, well, sorry about that. That's fair feedback. Please give me another chance. And I had another go, and she still wasn't happy. And it was getting right up to the deadline at Christmas when I had to hand the manuscript in. And I said, please give me a third chance. I promise you, I'm going to get it right. And I locked myself in a room a little bit like this for a day. And I just sat there a, and I, I read. And I thought about it and I, and I don't know what it was, but I gave myself, I guess, the headspace to really get underneath the surface of what social responsibility was all about. Mm-hmm. And, and I felt I cracked it. And I, as I say, I really do think it's one of the strongest chapters in the book. And so for me, it was a great moment because she really drove me to that. And I mm-hmm. probably needed that. I needed that kind of, you know, stick Moment for somebody to force me down a path where I had to spend more time thinking about it and reading up on it, and I feel now as a result i mean it 's one of the areas that i 'm most passionate about, and I talk a lot about and genuinely care about, but mm. prior to writing the chapter on social responsibility i wouldn 't even give myself one out of ten you know on recycling or anything else you know I was zero point zero so I feel that I'm a better person also for having written that and my understanding of it now as well.
1: And I'm glad, actually, we're recording this, not videoing it, so people can't see you in your uh, hemp one-piece suit. (laughs) 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 No, but again, if you think back to um, what we were saying about aligning people, then you're talking here at the top of the piece about, you know, chat to people and they'll understand. But there's also then the stick of an expert holding your toes to the fire and saying, you know, think harder, think better. So, quite yeah. Now, speaking of toes to the fire, let's assume your publisher says you're legally obliged to write another book uh, starting in September. What would that be? <laughs> Great question. I feel like I'm giving away
2: too many trade secrets now. No, 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 no I, we will. I, I'm not sure I'm going to write another book. I, I probably will in due course. Um, I think I probably write, I'd like to write a book on culture, because very much i mean that was a chapter in the book as well but i'd like to go into it in more detail because i think that fundamentally to be a truly customer centric business you have to have the right culture and i think again culture permeates everything and and the most successful businesses I I look at or the businesses that I think do really well around how they engage with their customers and consumers are businesses with great cultures and that comes from the top and that's something I'd like to delve into
1: in more detail oh that'd be fascinating so as when you do we'd love to do a follow-up on that I think um, to our character uh, and culture someone said that uh, character is what you do when you think no one's looking and I think that sums up a lot of retail when yeah. you have people are uh, increasingly autonomous. Uh, Martin, thank you so much. Sure. Uh, okay. You're not going, so... Uh, I'm not. Your voice will still be here, but focus now. Maya and Natalie, is invidious to put you both together. I'm sorry, but <laughs> you were joint authors, so you kind of... Uh, we're used to it. You started the bracket, but let's deal with you separately first. Let's start off, Natalie. Just tell us a little bit about your experience in the run-up to uh, your latest book and then we'll roll in and bring uh, Maya in as well to see how these how you both found each other on this crossroads <laughs>
3: Sure. So I have been a retail analyst for the past 15 years. Um, I used to head up research teams at Planet Retail, which is where Maya and I had the pleasure of getting to know each other. And I was at Kantar before. So I've always been a researcher, always been an analyst, uh, focusing on the biggest global retailers. Uh, I spent a lot of time on Walmart, then, of course, Amazon. Mm -hmm. And Of course, you
1: did a book on Walmart as well.
3: Yes. Yes. Yeah, about seven years ago, I co-authored a book about Walmart with Brian Roberts. So that was good practice. Uh, When (laughs) it came time to a warm up, yeah, I knew what I was getting into the second time around. Um, But the Amazon book felt very different, just because um, so much has changed. When Brian and I wrote our Walmart book, we had, I kid you not, about five or six pages dedicated to e-commerce and digital, and that was just you know seven years ago. And that was also
1: when you say that twenty twelve was. I don't know, 13 years after e-commerce started and maybe seven years after it started working.
3: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And the iPhone had only been around for, you know, a few years. So it it just, it's incredible how over the past, you know, seven, mm. seven eight years, it's just really taken off and has has really revolutionized the way that we shop as customers, mm. but also the way that retailers do business and, and how much of a threat Amazon has, has
1: become to the sector. And so your publisher, they hadn't spoken to you for a couple of years and they go, bring, bring. <laughs> tell you what, (laughs) there's a gap on the bookshelf in the alphabetical section starting A. Tell me how the the book came about.
3: The other way around, actually. Um, (laughs) They came back to to Brian and me saying, would you like to do a second edition of Walmart? And having, as I said, only written six pages of (laughs) e-commerce in our Walmart book, there would just be so much to do. And I just thought, actually, might be more interesting to look at Amazon. And at the time, I had been away from retail for 13 months. I had my second child. I was on mat leave. And I came back and I just thought, wow, so much has changed in the sector, mm-hmm. but also so much had changed at Amazon because, and now this is pre Whole Foods, bear in mind, <laughs> but it became really clear that they had this growing appetite for bricks and mortar retail. They're experimenting with lots of different formats in the US. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was quite an interesting shift in strategy. And also that they wanted grocery, they wanted to crack grocery. And of course, they couldn't do that without stores. So. I felt that they were at an inflection point, and I pitched the idea to the publisher, and I knew at that point, point, with Amazon being, uh, and we're very clear in the book, that Amazon isn't a retailer. They're a technology company, and I could not write a book about Amazon, the technology company, without a technology expert. So that's when I I begged Maya to to join me in in writing this book.
1: Right, so let's uh, (laughs) pick up on the story there. Maya, there you were, standing at the office coffee machine, (laughs) thinking, I'm so bored, I've got nothing to do, let me write a book. How, How did it really happen?
0: We were getting asked a lot of questions about Amazon. Um, mm. Natalie already mentioned, you know, at these consultancies, you work with global retailers um, and increasingly global brands as well. And uh, When it comes to things like winning the buy box, probability ratings, mm. um, Amazon was a dark art to even the biggest retailers who had been doing retail for, for as long as we'd and had hot dinners. So, and when you say dark hot, hot art, mm-hmm. sorry, just jumping in. No. I mean, we know around the
1: table that uh, it's it's normally under eight minutes before any board meeting mentions Amazon somewhere. Yeah. So, we mentioned the dark art, but you know, they're intelligent people. Uh, you can see what they do, retailers are intelligent people. What, what What is this dark art? Why why is Amazon seen in this mystical way?
0: I'll kind of answer, hopefully answer the question with another question, which oh. is how long <laughs> does it take before data gets mentioned at a board meeting? Is that before or after Amazon gets mentioned? Mm. To to Natalie's point about, I was just grateful Natalie bought into my, my idea that Amazon is a technology company first and a retailer second, and she was going to give me the opportunity to write a book that mm. irrefutably proved that. And do you still think that? Absolutely,
1: definitely, yeah. absolutely. But if if I, again, I don't want to be provocative, but you could actually say that uh, last century retailers weren't retailers, they were property companies. And you could say that 1970s retailers were really supply chain companies. Yeah. So, you know, is that just the fact that they should now die and technology companies take over? Or is there some blending where a modern retailer actually has to be at least those three and maybe more.
0: Absolutely. So I always talk about the fact that retailers have traditionally been innovators in industry. If you go back to the turn of the 20th century, Mr Selfridge was the first to put plate glass windows, elevators, escalators um, into stores, sprinkler systems. Um, I think it was Nordstrom maybe that introduced layaway, so credit. All Mm -hmm. of these things were invented by retailers. I think, to, your, to the examples that you mentioned, retailers became very good at innovating with where they open properties, became customer-centric, dialled into what customers wanted from a location perspective and innovated to that. Mm. Now that we've moved into a digital era where consumers are now, um, let's say the 80s, you've got the carborn shopper. So you've got the grocers out- opening out-of-town stores. You've got an explosion of malls. Retailers have always been very good at following what the shopper wants. It's just strange that in the digital era, um, where technology is the differentiator, they seem to struggle.
1: Can technology differentiate everywhere? So as as we pushed Martin earlier on saying, look, if everybody is customer centric, where's the differentiation? Isn't there an example or or a case to say that there there is only room for very, very few technology innovators when most people are going to be technology users?
0: Absolutely, and again, you know, you can only vent plate glass windows once, so you can be a, an innovator or a fast follower. <laughs> yeah. Um, but the fast following element to pick up on Andrew's point about customer centricity, I think, is what's lagging the opportunity at the moment. So, technology is a, an invaluable tool, um, an essential tool for retailers in terms of giving them that online and offline view of what customers want, of how they're behaving, of their activity. In fact, you hear more and more nowadays from retailers that they're drowning in data, and it's usually online data because of the digital breadcrumbs that we leave as customers. And the store kind of has been left as a, as a poor relation as a sales channel nowadays in terms of gathering data about mm. the customer. But if, they, if retailers were to potentially learn for some of the the lessons in the way that Amazon has used technology to follow Mm -hmm. the customer, to understand the customer. They could apply those learnings more equally across all their sales channels and actually maybe have an advantage over... Amazon as Natalie rightly says has that ambition to move into brick and mortar but hasn't quite done so yet. I will say one last thing though in terms of Hopefully how not I,
4: lost how I, <laughs>
1: well, in terms of
0: answering your question in terms of how I got here I think I'm I don't know until Richard um chimes in but I think I'm the only one that came from wanting to be a writer into writing about retail.
1: Oh Richard did you want to be a writer?
0: Uh, well, that's a really
4: interesting question because
1: that's not that's not an unequivocal <laughs> yes. <is it? laughs> well,
4: One no, of the answers: everybody wants to feel that they have a creative uh, outlet to themselves. To, so to say no would be absurd. But I didn't want to write a business book. They're bloody hard. No, sure <laughs>
0: Roundtable actually did, but um, but no, I studied um, I studied English literature and uh, ended up becoming. Um, Earning the crust writing by journalism and then... God bless them all. Especially
1: the lovely retailing writers who uh, I'm sure are all uh, listening to this now. Amazon, one of the things that I think sets it apart from retailers is a pretty joyous scale of ambition. So when we talk a lot to retailers now, they are focused on the business of retailing sell more, better margin to more people, stay in business, et cetera. Whereas Amazon just nips off and buys an airline or sets up uh, you know, a robot trial. you know, This buys something immense. So part of that is obviously, look, they've just got the money, why wouldn't you? But also I think it uh, might hint at a broader vision for what a company does with consumers these days rather than Self pigeonholing them. Is that, is that a mm-hmm. fair thing or am I just off on fancy?
3: No, absolutely. I think it's so interesting. And, and this is. Maya and I really wanted to dissect, you know, Amazon's strategy and figure out what it was that makes them tick. And also, why are they doing everything they're doing? I mean, mm. if you look at Amazon as an outsider, it seems really illogical to, as you say, move into banking and airlines. And, um, you know, they produce TV shows that win Golden Globes. Yeah, I forgot about the TV shows, yeah. Facial recognition mm-hmm. software, they sell that to the US government. I mean, they're everywhere. And so we had to kind of get a little bit philosophical and ask ourselves, what is Amazon? And what is their end game. But I think what Amazon... I'm sorry,
1: what is the answer then? What is
3: that? So here's the thing. I think one thing that they've done really well is that they've embedded themselves in our lives, in our shoppers' lives, and in our physical homes as well with Alexa and everything else that they're doing and having bought Ring. And um, so I think that in itself is quite interesting. And also potentially part of the downfall. Um, I think we might be inching closer to peak Amazon because they're moving into more and more sectors, offering more services. In the U.S., they're moving into healthcare, into banking. And I just think as a consumer, at what point is it just too much Amazon? Mm -hmm. So, they're moving into groceries. We buy groceries every week. So, if you're getting your groceries delivered by Amazon, you're watching TV through Prime Video, you're listening to music through Amazon, Mm -hmm. uh, you've got your bank accounts, your healthcare. I mean, at what point is it too much? You know, One company controlling... Our lives, and I think that we but are. You also we are have getting Google,
1: them. who are saying, "Look, we'll control your lives for you." <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's not as if it's it's uh, not monopolistic; it's you know oligopolistic, where there are several several different lives you could have. Um, but is it behind that this idea that um, humans, through all our activity, are simply there to throw off data that Amazon can commercialize?
0: So. No. (laughs) Um, Can I just say there
1: are no Alexa devices in this room? (laughs) Jeff
0: might be listening. No, uh, I mean, uh, just thinking, on try and answer your question, but building on what Natalie said at the same time, um, why does Amazon shoot off on its tangents? It is very clear on... Tackling the areas in consumer life and mm-hmm. um, where, where, where there is room for disruption, where it's already Absolutely. mediocre. Mm. To pick up on the discussion with Andrew, they are truly customer centric in that sense. They're not customer centric in that they will, there's a difference between having a customer informed offer, mm. which means I'm going to be That's a good point. very clear about what I can afford to give you. Mm-hmm. of what you want, Mr. Mister, and Mrs. Customer. And then there's a customer-led offer. They're very clearly customer-informed, but they will mm. align that with areas where they think they can make the biggest impact. And if that means they're moving into um, entertainment or dash buttons or failed attempt that we went into into a lot of detail their fire phone mobile phones for example they'll do that and the final thing i'll put say underneath all of that the thing that underpins that is it creates an ecosystem okay. and i think the digital age internet enabled age that we live in to your point about google and facebook they own and build out ecosystems which are far stickier and have a lot more longevity you
3: know amazon has this what we refer to in the book a relentless dissatisfaction with the status quo and i think that really sums it up and you know we we're desperate to get the word relentless phrase. into our title as well weren't we <laughs> a great phrase. um but it's true you know they're always looking at ways to enhance the customer experience they're always looking at ways of of doing things better for the customer so i think it's definitely identifying those sectors where actually the status quo you know, isn't that great? Can't, they could do something better, but it's also that they've established trust with consumers, so they can it's and they can spend, do that. that yeah. yeah, they but can, by can doing translate what they say,
1: yeah. rather than just talking and not doing.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah,
1: no, I, I I totally agree with with everything you've both
2: said. And but I suppose to to that extent, I mean, the reason you know their ability to disrupt and to push the barrier and to raise the bar, which I know they focus on in all their projects. They think about, you know, are we doing as much as we can for the customer and how can we push this on and make it better? I think as long as they continue to do that, I'm not sure that we're going to see the end of them anytime soon. I think there's more likelihood that at some point in time they'll get so large with with the Amazon Web Services business and the retail side of the business that they they may be forced to break up the business. But from a consumer point of view, as long as you know, to your point there, Natalie, as long as you know... You've got an ecosystem and you trust them and they're great at what they do and arguably they're better at anybody else whenever they go into something new, you know, which is why when they go into retail, you know, they do books arguably better than anybody else. I've just been in their bookstore in New York you know, taking all the great stuff that they do online and integrating it into the physical environment, it's hard to imagine them not continuing to, to grow from where they are. But, yeah, well, I
3: think was, we're a long way off. I think yeah. that Amazon has a long way to go. But you think about the UK grocery sector. Fifteen years ago, everybody was moving into you know entertainment and telecoms. Yeah. And then there was this mass retrenchment and everyone's now focused mostly on, you know, the core grocery
1: offering. Mm-hmm.
3: So I think, I think we're a long way. way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think we're a long way sure. from Amazon hitting that, but... but
1: Let's let's look to that because uh, you did sort of offer us that uh, that morsel on a hook, and again we're not wishing uh, failure on them, but by any means. <laughs> so, so I'm not being naughty. I'm just thinking, for every you know Mebo or whatever they're called disappeared, and MySpace came and went, and they were you know the forever places. So in the same way, I'm sure that uh, as the wheel of time turns, Amazon will morph or change. Uh, what, what give us a glimpse of that? post-Amazon or next Amazon or Amazon 4.0 world? Where's the turn of the wheel take us next?
3: Well... If we think about our relationship with Amazon, it's it's pretty transactional, isn't it? It's mm-hmm. it's not inspiring. It's not, you know, we don't go to Amazon to go shopping. We go on Amazon to to buy, to purchase something. So I think we have to make that distinction. I think that's going to become more important in the future. And I think we're already seeing on the high street that there's an opportunity, as we describe in the book, to focus on what Amazon can't do. So WACD, as we <laughs> as we've. <W-A-C-D>.
1: <laughs> That'd be a really good an yeah. <laughs> Sounds like a radio program. <laughs>
3: <laughs> um, and, you know, what Amazon can't do, that's experience, that's human touch, that's curation. Um, and, you know, to Martin's point about physical stores, I'm not... Totally convinced that Amazon can do bricks and mortar. Hmm. I think the jury's still out. I think they take a very scientific, data led approach to everything they do. And, and translating that into bricks and mortar stores, you know, sometimes.
1: That sort of sounds like um, you don't have to be mad to have a store, but it helps.
0: Yeah. So maybe
1: it's the lack of data that allowed us to carry on for 50 years building stores and sort of letting the money come out in the wash. Well,
0: it builds on the question you asked earlier. I think. Natalie said Amazon's at an inflection point. I think the whole retail industry is Mm. at an inflection point in that sense with the customer at the centre of it, where, to summarise, merchants need to learn the customer-centric, tech savvy skills of Amazon and Amazon needs to learn the merchant curation skills of... Uh, that's a very diplomatic vision.
1: answer, I must say. <laughs> uh,
4: i the, just had a warm feel. perfect example of that in the four star store in yeah. New York. A four star store is a retail disaster. I so think it's, it's awful, awful, yeah. awful merchandise store. Yeah. It's entirely data driven. There are two tables in it that are interesting. There's the table that says these are the things within half a mile of this store that people like. That that's an engaging table. That suddenly makes sense because there's a curation behind it, exactly as you say. The data is all there in that store, mm. but the heart and soul and the feel and the merchant isn't in that store. No, mm. but also it looks like, you know, a pound store. Yeah. <laughs> there, there's no circulation.
3: That's harsh. The,
2: well, no.
1: <laughs> but again, I'll, I'll just say why you're thinking oh, and yes. reality may not be the same. So I went in there and thought this is just the biggest mess I've seen. It's like a bazaar. Um the labelling was awful, I couldn't scan things. I thought, what is the point? and there were people queuing up to pay. So I stand there thinking this is idiotic and I was just penning a little article about, oh, I know better than Amazon. And then three of the people I was with said, excuse me, nipped off and bought something. We met out on the street later. So my brain was saying that doesn't mean it's amazing its ability to trade No, no, I know, but saying, and
4: it, what's clear about it is that the data is compelling that's been used to construct that environment, but the environment itself exactly. could trade significantly yeah, be, better if it felt like yeah. a nice experience.
1: And also the bookstore. I mean, you were there last week. I think it's one of the worst bookstores in the world. <laughs> <laughs> it literally looks like a Borders from last century with a sort of cheap and not very cheerful buy a Kindle, buy a thing slapped to the front. I wish you would stop mincing your words, Ian. Yeah, sorry. Um, <laughs> Jeff, I will say that when Johnny comes in... <laughs>
2: I take everyone's saying on board, but the thing I would say as well is that we are driven largely by what other people like us do, mm. which is why ratings and reviews have worked over the last 10 years. And I think that that's what they do well. And I think the way they bring that and incorporate that into both the bookstore and also into the four-star store in New York is why you're, the three people you were with went and bought something. Yeah, yeah. Because you're influenced. not like me. You're influenced, exactly, <laughs> exactly.
1: Hey, um, let's just wrap this off. We uh, go on to Richard. Just two tweet lengths each. What did you learn with the book? What was the thing that uh, you think, I now know that? And then the second question is, what one thing should practical retailers actually do tomorrow morning or from their hammocks to do something to compete at Amazon? So... Bright bit for you, what should we do?
3: So the thing that surprised me most is that, you know, Maya and I went into it knowing that Amazon is not a retailer, they're a technology company, and that was the angle we started with. But what surprised me is that Amazon's also... becoming the rails that the retail sector runs on. And Mm -hmm. that's obviously causing some potential antitrust issues as well. And I think at some point, Amazon needs to decide whether it wants to be the retailer or the infrastructure. Yes. Um, Good point. Yeah. And just to quickly add to that, um, in the book, we predicted that by 2021, so just in a couple of years time, most of Amazon's revenues will come from services. Rather than from the sale of first-party goods, so that's quite a big shift for them. In terms of what retailers can do, um, I
1: think just the one thing. What's the
3: one one thing?
1: thing. We're on holiday, remember.
3: (laughs) (laughs) You need to take in some inspiration from Amazon. You know, in that they are relentlessly focused on the customer. They Mm. genuinely put the customer at the heart of their strategies. They're not customer-centric. They're customer infatuated Mm, and I think all retailers I see Martin nodding (laughs) I think all retailers can uh, can learn from that but at the same time you can't out Amazon Amazon so Mm. you have to focus on the things that they can't do
1: out yourself yourself
3: oh we're getting philosophical now
1: (laughs) Maya, uh, what's your tweet that you'd be uh, sending from the hammock to do? What should they do and what surprised you? Uh,
0: The surprise is that I slightly disagree with Natalie. (laughs) No! (laughs) (laughs) Because I do think it's possible to be the rails and be the retailer. I think Alibaba does it fantastically well in China. They don't set themselves up as category killers. Mm. They don't uh, bring on small to medium-sized business third-party merchants and then promptly pinch their business, which, again not to put Jeff off coming on a future <laughs> podcast, is is one of the uh, you know, criticisms of Amazon. So uh, in terms of what, what surprised me most is, um, well, I, I do think it's the same issue, though. I think um, how are they going to resolve that? How are okay. they going to resolve the fact that they can be seen as both an enemy and a friend? Of
1: okay, enemy? so the frenemy. And uh, um, what's the one thing to do?
0: One thing to do? Again, I've I am going to agree with Natalie this time. It's to, to to work out how to be more customer-centric, but to build on Martin's practical advice, it's know who your best customers are, hmm. online and offline, and just as you try and, and can personalise that journey when they engage with you online by showing them things they, they yeah. might complement, ratings and reviews, extend that capability into the store. The right, that, that still is one tweet
1: platform. I really don't want to get or text message. So that's, that's a whole pile. <laughs> that's basically just do a year's worth of work while I'm on holiday.
0: Know your best customers and serve them consistently <laughs> that's offline the one. and Good. online.
1: Lovely. Uh, well, we've had, ended up with a note of harmony. So let's continue yeah. that. Which uh, uh, I wasn't quite sure how to sum you up, so I'm not going to bother. I'm going to let you introduce yourself. <laughs> uh And you're sort of the filling in a bookie sandwich right now. Because (laughs) uh, when we look back, we've got um, your first book now in its uh, fourth uh, incarnation, uh, Smart Retail. And then you're launching your new book tonight. Yeah. So uh, not that tonight matters, because by the time this goes out, it'll be (laughs) launched. But anyway, tell us about yourself and uh, how you ended up as the filling in this sandwich.
4: Okay, so um, I've been a retailer for 34 years started when i was 15 a bit of martin's story resonated where i fell in love with with retail i fell in love with being in shops and i decided that as long as i could keep pace with kind of a, a lifestyle that i wanted to live working in retail i'd put off going to university mm. and unfortunately i did manage to keep pace with with that and <laughs> so didn't go and I, I do deeply regret it actually you say you shouldn't regret things but i do regret that for some of the reasons you mentioned martin and actually it comes back to writing a book is part of that, well, I feel I need some academic legitimacy hmm. having missed out on the first time and you know, I lecture at uh, University of Westminster and guest lecture in all sorts of places now and you do walk those halls thinking oh at some point somebody's going to point a finger now and say you haven't even got a degree you should be you should be out of here so the book is a kind of a uh, a legitimizer in some ways so it's just like i'll see your phd and read <laughs> a fourth edition book well and it was also so you know serendipity plays a big part in everything we do and then we try to post rationalize mm-hmm. i had just finished a job and i had a bit of savings available and i could i could lay around for a year and I knew that my mum and dad would give me hell if I didn't do anything, so I told them without having any plan. I said, "Oh, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm taking a year off, but I'm, I'm going to be writing a book," and uh, then had to work out what I would write <laughs> and why and where it would fit. But it turned out there were, there were two things that I that I knew about. One was retailing from a customer perspective, and I shared very much the same positioning as everybody here, and, and I couldn't agree more with with Meyer's point about uh, uh, customer leading before product. I mean the there are so many great case studies we can talk about there that uh, would end up diverting us down a, a path, and, and again, Amazon is such a great example. I don't think Amazon care about product. I don't think they give a monkey. What's their problem? Someone else's product, mm. then you live or die. That's why
0: they're the everything store. Yeah, as well.
4: Yeah. Well, what they care about is outcomes and needs. You know, what is the outcome and the need that a customer has, and mm. how do we use our technology platform? Because it, it is absurd to think of them as anything other. Than a technology platform, but you can be lots of other things. You know, you, you can be a retailer on top of a technology platform. Of course, you can. But anyway, yeah. So it was. Uh, I, I thought, well, I better write this bloody book now. So I wrote a list of the world's top five business publishers, and I thought, well, it's got to be published by one of those because otherwise, it's not worth doing. Um, yeah, ego at that age. So just tell us who your publisher is. Just so they can look yeah, you into this. Pearson, who at the time Paul were Pearson. the world's biggest, yeah. um, but who, who uh, are less so now. Uh, that's is that diplomatic. Whatever, yeah, it's, it's, not, it's, a, it's, it's, it's right transparent <laughs> <laughs>
1: There's a thumping as the PR person uh, sits outside. Uh, yeah.
4: uh, but but so I, I... Everybody's experience is different, but I, I emailed a publisher at uh, Pearson and that same afternoon we had a rough deal in Outline. Nice. And it was because Rachel, who was a genius, she was a fabulous publisher, I was so lucky, that morning she'd had a giant bollocking from her boss Who'd said we're well, the world's biggest business publisher? and We haven't got anything on retail. And then at <laughs> lunchtime, my, my <laughs> proposal right. comes along, and Rachel bless said, "Well, if we can write three words in a row and put a full stop in the right place, then yeah. that's probably me looking okay now." But that was that was a good experience because it meant I had a blank sheet. I knew I had a contract. Mm. And so what I did is I went and talked to the world's best retailers and just. But you were slightly cheeky about this. I mean.
1: I mean, I like it, but if my kids are saying, Dad, how should I go about it? And then you call the book Smart Retail, which is kind of a challenge, because no one wants to think that they're in the wrong bit of that book. Uh, And then then you say, hi, um, I'd like you to have the book for me. question is, what makes you so good? Yeah. So I'm feeling the humour there.
4: Yeah.
1: Uh, So... I don't know whether you wrote to them on vellum and uh, fancy pen,
4: <laughs> but you know, you just approach people saying, what makes you good? It's, it, it, there were only two people who didn't talk to me. One was Apple, um, and I've, I've since uh, spoken to some of the people who refused me back then, um, which is always an in- interesting thing because they don't remember having ref- refused. <laughs> um, and I can't remember who the second people were, but I've told that story of it being two people that refused for such a long time. Most people want to tell you why they're good most people want to share their secrets not because they're secrets but because we want to feel like we're doing something worthwhile so you're listening to these answers and i'm sure they're all lovely answers nobody yeah. would be uh
1: you know self-promoting or manipulating or <laughs> trying to write their own tombstone uh, so give me a, give me an answer you thought oh my god that is just between the eyes mm. you know beautiful clarity or you know what was your favourite
4: answer? There, there were lots. and Actually, my favourite answer came from a, a chap who's unfortunately no longer with us. And he wasn't, at the time, a retailer himself. He was actually closer to our basket, um, a guy called George Wallin. And George was almost the prototypical American consultant. One-man band, had built a brand for himself before online, had set himself up as the voice of the customer in those retail businesses. He had a long history at uh, Nordstrom uh, previous to that and had gone out on his own. And he was way ahead of his time. He was just constantly talking about the, the answers are in the people who you want to sell to. The answers to everything you want to develop, every service you want to change, every range you need to put in place, every communication you want to make, the answers are there. Now, you can't just go and ask customers because customers lie. They don't mean to lie, but mm-hmm. they, they do. You know, We all know yeah. that every survey you ever ask customers, what two things can we do, the customer says lower prices and more choice. Mm-hmm. And then when you observe behaviours, price tends to feature four, five, six, seven down the list. And when a customer says they want more choice, what they mean is I want you to do a better job of putting of the right thing me the in my right hands. Things, yeah. um, which is, incidentally, Amazon's Achilles heel. When you guys talk about do what Amazon can't, Amazon are atrocious at curation. And that's why those interesting attempts like the four-star store and, and like the data that's driven the bookshop are so fascinating because it's like watching your kid learn to ride a bicycle. Mm. You know, the brain synapses are firing. They go, oh, I've fallen off, I've fallen off, firing and fine. then you see your kid suddenly goes, whoa, whoa, whoa. Now they can ride mm-hmm. and they can ride forever and they never forget it. And Amazon, I, I think that will happen at some point to them. There will be a point where they go, this There's is like a Hal 2000 into. moment. Though, oh, it, isn't tot- it? <laughs> it totally is. It totally is, yeah. and I I love him as an Instagram. So
1: um, we have that. Uh, it's within your customer. And again, I'm feeling naughty now. I feel I want to discuss pure product first, but I'm, I'm going to <laughs> behave myself. Was there a prevalent answer? That maybe smelt a bit like a three-day-old fish. Don't don't name names, but just tell us what the answer
4: that were, just were, didn't ring true. I, I won't name names, but there were plenty of retail businesses who were kind of sitting there going, "Yeah, it's definitely because of us. It's definitely because of all these things. I don't know. I don't know what it is that makes us special. I don't." Hmm. And you can see it on people's faces. They couldn't articulate anything that that made that made you've been around board tables, Martins, where you've seen that again and again. Yep. But on the flip side, there were four consistencies that we saw over and over again. And that list of consistencies has, has expanded a, a bit. But back in the original version of the book, we saw that the, the people who were being fabulously successful had a very strong purpose. Mm-hmm. They knew why they were rolling the shutters up in the morning. And that purpose... Could be product, could be socio. You know, it was it almost be, never was it? product.
1: It was very rarely I'm, product. i so
4: feeling
1: it would be. Can, can I just ask? <laughs> if I have a product listener, I just want a little bit of backup on this. So <laughs> let's see if I get this one.
4: So it was, it was never product. What was it? I'll give you a great example. The best retailer on the planet, bar none, is Container Store. Container Store is a fabulous shop that sells essentially stuff to put things in, stuff to put things on. Mm-hmm. And as the founders' father said to him when he first started it, "How on earth are you going to make money selling empty boxes?" And Container Store is full of great product, and it has a business that has fabulous product people in it who love finding the perfect picnic basket, who mm-hmm. love creating wonderful things. But that business is entirely built around understanding how does somebody use product, but but to what end? What is mm-hmm. the the final point of that? That that. And it, there's a great example of, of, of this for me, which which kind of knits together two things which takes great product but also takes solutions which is there's a great stat from container store if a customer doesn't talk to a member of staff they buy on average 1.2 items if they do talk to a member of staff they buy on average seven to eight items and there's a great illustration of that i was in there the new york store holding a letter tray i didn't want a letter tray i was just looking at because you know that's your job (laughs) and the person who came over to me she said this brilliant thing she said What's got you thinking about your mail today? It wasn't. We've got that in a range of colours. Have you seen yeah. all the ones you want to see? What's got you thinking about your mail today? And so I just, I, we're so disorganised at home. Tell me about that disorganisation. What does it mean? Yeah. And she said, I said, well, stuff comes through the door. We've got a little rack, but it, it we tend to lose things and important things. Mm. Okay, so what do you do? What do you physically do? Well, I take them, I put them in the rack, or we take them into the kitchen and they go on the work surface. Then she said, how valuable is that countertop space to you. <laughs> That's the clothes. So I said, valuable. Yeah, it's hugely valuable. <laughs> and before I knew it, she was planning my new way of handling yeah. mail. And it was it was fabulous. And It was a great example of how... When it did you fess was... up that uh, you were just hiding out and fondling random <laughs> items? <laughs> I, I, I'd like to say I, I bought all the stuff, but uh, no, I didn't. I, right. I just kind of...
2: Um... <clears throat> can I, sorry, can I just make a quick comment yeah. about Container Store? Because... When you talk okay. about being customer-centric, the, the, the starting point on that journey is being employee-centric and employee mm. first. Mm. And I think they're a great example of a business that probably does that better than anyone. Yeah. They put their employees at the heart of everything they do, yeah. and then their employees put the customer at the heart of everything so, that they do. They go the extra mile. So. Yeah. But we've got
1: so a lot of hearts example. now, though. So we've got purpose at the heart of your purpose. Mm. Then you put your employees <laughs> at the heart <laughs> of that, and they then put the customer at the heart
4: of but it. But it's a good example of, of, of what Martin was saying about culture is is that if you have a clear purpose that can be articulated by the person pushing trolleys around the car park up to the CEO, if broadly those people are all saying roughly the same thing, Mm -hmm. then it's very easy to build a a culture around that where people know what they need to do, because you can pass it through that filter. So you can say, is my employment practice, is it built on enabling people to deliver this purpose? and. It, it, it it's multi layered in as much as it's layers supporting that one thing but there are other consistencies the other three word clarity mm-hmm. that all all of the world's best retailers are very good at saying here's why you want to shop me here's what you get from it here's and it can be the most basic thing it's it, it's one of the toughest things in the world to crack actually clarity because we Almost accidentally obfuscate things because things are more complex than they but appear. Isn't that
1: sometimes, because the clarity is, I'm like them, but closer to you, or yeah.
4: I've just it, copied what they did, but for bird food. I mean, you know. Oh, right. I see. What you mean, <laughs> yeah. There's there's some there's some of that, but it's it's that inevitable thing about wanting to make sure we're never caught out. So retailers will often the, the best example is is if we could walk into Cold in Yard just outside where we're talking now, and we could find three customer offers, so sales promotions, that have the most complex Byzantine set of rules behind them, that we would immediately, not not just as retail experts, we would put it down and say, it's is ridiculous. But a stupid person hasn't put that offer together. A clever person has put that offer together. Obfuscation and lack of clarity come from understanding the wider implications of something that we're trying to do. And so... Getting to that simplicity is really hard. It's mm. tough. And Walmart yeah. is a great example of a business right now who have become just preeminent at understanding what, to, how to explain what they're for. And um, customer centricity is the, is the third, and also the fourth is exactly as Martin said: respect for their people. Mm. And respect is the key word. It's not just enablement. It's actually saying to people, look, you know more about our customers than we do because you're closer to them. So looking at a Container Store again. A container store employee gets an average of 210 hours of training a year. The average in retail in North America is six. Mm -hmm. So that's straight away a business saying, here is a way that we can show that we trust you because we're investing all this time and energy in you and we want you to go and do the sort of thing that... I once did a
1: um, top 100 transformation programme for a major retailer and uh, we took the 100 top directors off. Uh, It was a three-day... 8 a.m. to 11 p.m. You know, they worked hard. We leveraged synergies and all this kind of, you know, tweaked (laughs) KPIs. Uh, It was a great program. I enjoyed it. Very inspiring. Uh, Six months later, I got a phone call saying, Oyan, could you roll this out to our staff? So I multiplied my day rate by (laughs) 50,000 people and thought, this is my pension fee. We wanted to condense the program, Mm. and you have to roll it out. So this three-day program. They gave me 15 minutes to do. (laughs) And on the day we delivered it, they were also getting the uh, briefing on the spring drop and the cut of the older women's fashion, the new low-fat curry range. And you think, you know, those people who are literally carrying your brand uh, have so much to do. It's like an inverted pyramid.
4: But there's a really good example in that, of of, of exactly that kind of program, of how... some traditional retailers get thinking backwards. So I won't name a retailer, um, but there was a, a huge UK retailer who came to us 10 years ago and said, we'd like you to create a leadership programme for our 1,100 store managers. Kaching. Uh, well, and actually I, I wasn't prepared to do that because I knew that what you would have is a programme that put focus on for three months and because everybody was doing it, everybody with a resource, that would make a difference for three months and no stop. Instead, I, I, I went back to that client and said, we we can't do that nobody can people will tell you they can what we can do is help you find the 1100 leaders who are already in your business and we'll find those and we'll give those people the tools they need to lead culture change within Mm. and the response to that was just a head explosion and that's not how it's done i've got a box that says i've got to deliver this
1: (laughs) (laughs) it's my kpi hey um Mm. See, notice no friction now. Just left to a new topic. <laughs> Great. So you've gone from what makes people special. There's the four main
4: strands. Yeah. But now you
1: think special isn't enough. Yeah. Let's cut out
4: some friction. Everybody's talked about this inflection point, and this is the critical thing for me here. If, if we were, if a siren went off now that said the world is about to end, we can only stop the the end of the world by, for some weird reason, becoming better retailers. There's one thing available to us. And it is that we have to understand that we are now led by customers, that customers are in charge of the relationship. And that's not a soft thing. That's not a, oh, it's nice to say customers are at the heart of the thing. It's an actual thing that has happened in our marketplace. We used to be, as retailers, able to dictate we could say, this is what a store looks like, this is where it goes, this is how it's shaped, this is the small bit of the range we will, we will condescend to offer you. If you want a different colour, tough. If it exists in a different marketplace, tough. You get what we tell you. The competitive pressures would nibble around the edge of that. Well, because of massive visibility of choice, but safe, easy access to those choices... That's complete, It's not even in progress. It's turned. It's finished. Mm. The customer is entirely in charge of the relationship. So what I did as, as a response to that in the last book before this one is I wanted to see what metric could explain customers' behaviors in that context. And it turned out there isn't one. Oh. there's some that get close i have put my pen away I was about to take a note there <laughs> <laughs> well there is one now and you can buy a description of it for 16 dollars 99 and I will put the link to all of these at the bottom uh, <laughs> for those who uh, want to grab them immediately the link is yeah so uh, there are and I, I, I went into various places for this and I, I had no thoughts about writing writing a book about it I just wanted to understand could we explain customers behaviours when customers have full visibility and access to all of their range of choices And it turns out the two things that drive those decision-making processes are the things that are in the way of the customer fulfilling their mission in that particular way. Yeah. So all the customer inputs, all the things I have to climb over to get to the thing. But there's another element to it, which is also everything I get from choosing to shop in that particular way. Now... um, there's another book that came out brilliantly two days before mine which has half of my title uh, the first half <laughs> uh, called Friction but written by an incredibly clever person who I respect enormously and it talks about how the model is Amazon Airbnb and Uber yeah. and it essentially says now, so you take Friction out of your business to get like those guys which is kind of silly because you can only ever be a not quite as good Amazon you can only ever be a not quite as good Uber if you chase that direction mm. And that was the, the, the telling thing for me. Friction is something which is being spoken around in boardrooms everywhere in retail now. The yin the to it is reward, the customer output. What do I get from shopping that way? And there are so many good examples of how customers will put up with a bit extra friction if the reward is big enough for because them. Reward can it's be, worth it. Absolutely. And it can be all sorts of things. It can be emotional reward, discovery reward. It can be reward in terms of, of low prices. So nobody has to go and buy a big box of washing powder anymore from a physical store and put it in a... You know, we have a dash button underneath the washing machine now. But people will do that if Aldi and Lidl offer them a product that works brilliantly, that saves them money and the experiences. And that balance between those two mm. elements is what the, the book is about. You know, I, I hate... I, I was going to say I hate self-promotion, but we're in a room but, doing I, exactly <laughs> that. Literally hate yourself uh, and promote away. I'm English, so it embarrasses <laughs> me terribly. Um, oh, no, the book is fine. You don't really need it. Um, No, this is the most important thing I've ever written about. Um, The interplay between friction and reward is at the heart of all decision-making. And funnily enough, it's the reason why since we started talking about it, not just as a a book but also as the startup, uh, Uncrowd.uk, that we've created to provide a SaaS platform to analyze frictions and rewards within businesses. Since we started talking about that, yes, we've got retail clients – but we've also got um, rail companies, we've got utilities businesses, and we've got British intelligence uh, talking to us about how we can use the uh, analysis. Incidentally, of all the, the, the companies we're working with, the single one we don't have an NDA with... Is British intelligence. But that's, <laughs> that's why they know where you live. They'll send in <laughs> 007 to sort you I, out. I'm following up. They're
2: listening to
1: us as we speak. Yes. And they're welcome to come and join uh, Jeff and Sir Johnny uh, with us as well.
4: Um, yeah. So, yeah, I, I, Understanding that interplay between the two. And I give quite a lot of tools away in in the book. There's a lot of templates there. There's a website, frictionreward.com. At frictionreward.com, you'll find the templates. You can have them for free. There are some patents that uh, we have in the process around some of the ideas behind it, which Mm -hmm. is um, you know, you know that you've hit on something when it turns out that what you've described is patentable. Yeah. Um, You mean like the uh, one click buy? That Amazon did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so that's, that's a really good example of, of how Amazon thrives from the sale that either doesn't matter very much. Yeah. So I have a dash button for bin liners. And it's actually liberating knowing that I will never think about bin liners ever, well, until they change the product and ruin it. And it's probably not a good the time price. to tell
3: you that they've uh, phased out dash buttons. Well, they've phased
4: out, but they still work, which is the lovely thing. <laughs> do they? Thing. Oh, yeah. there we go. Yeah, they still operate. <laughs> but you could you. just say, Alexa, yeah. get me more bin There we go. Well, Alexa is a great example. I, I I do buy an Alexa in a very specific use case. And it's when I'm changing my son's nappy, and you've suddenly got a, a bit here and a tag there, and you've got, and you go, oh, there's, there's only one nappy left. And you just, Alexa, uh, by nappies, and it, they, they turn up magically mm-hmm. the next day. It's... And do
1: they also track your son's growing weight and therefore uh, <laughs> not you up to the next... Uh, I wish they did. That would be good? brilliant. Hey, listen, so question for you then. Yeah. By the time this goes out, your current book will be in the rear view mirror. Yeah. You'll just be looking at the sales, and you must be thinking about the next one. So you've gone from, you know,
4: what do you get right? Friction reward. Yeah. What, what's the next thing tickling your brain? <laughs> I, I've... I've Written four versions of one and one version of a new one. Ian, I never ever want to do it again.
0: <laughs> Which I love means communication. Start
4: in September, <laughs> God, I you... never
0: talk to an author within a quarter of them having written. book. <laughs> I'll never do it again. <laughs> in You're absolutely first right. Three months. <laughs> right.
1: Well, listen. If if anyone's uh, picking this up on iTunes in a couple of years' time, then uh, we'll we'll just see whether they Google you. And there's another two books out. <laughs> Richard, thank you so much. Thank listen. You. Um, we need to wrap things up just because uh, the stopwatch says that the Factor 50 on our listeners' body in the hammock is now due for replenishment. So we wouldn't want them to uh, get anything greasy on their uh, on their listening devices. So thank you for joining us. Uh, we hope you've enjoyed this uh, hour in your ear. But most of all, massive thanks to our guests for um, giving and taking with equal measure of aplomb Martin, Natalie, Maya, Richard, thank you all so much. And so our next thing will be back to normal retailers in a rainy London studio. And we hope in the meantime, you enjoy your summer break. Um, Ian I bought you a copy of the book oh lovely can I just say that under the terms of the bribery act I'm accepting <clears throat> this not as an inducement <laughs> bribery
0: <laughs> just like t- it, yeah. it, it, is just my launching
4: tonight tonight is the launch party fabulous um, good luck but, with um, it. thank you uh, excellent I'm nervous and you gave up talk gear uh. <laughs> you've never
2: heard that before Thank you, Martin. it would be, be really interesting to have a
4: coffee with yeah, you. Yeah, absolutely. Brilliant. Thank you, Martin. I don't yeah, collaborate carry. on... Oh, no, it, and your, as you lifted your history there, I, 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 it's wonderful talking to people who've been just in front of customers in those situations. Yeah. So I love the war stories. Yeah. I really do.
0: Yeah.
4: Why are they always war stories rather than delight stories? <laughs>
0: because... Are the ones that stick in your mind? No one's ever <laughs> saying to our customers, thank could you, you be star-focused?
1: They're never very far <laughs> away from being fired. That's why they
4: war stories. <laughs>